If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Generally, I dislike aphorisms, mostly because they're misremembered and the intention is lost in Chinese whispers. In 1966, Abraham Maslow, an interesting psychologist, published The Psychology of Science, and in it he articulated what is now known as Maslow's Hammer, the version of the hammer and nail aphorism we have today. He wrote, I remember seeing an elaborate and complicated automatic washing machine for automobiles that did a beautiful job of washing them, but it could do only that, and everything else that got into its clutches was treated as if it were an automobile to be washed. I suppose it is tempting, if the only tool you have is a hammer, to treat everything as if it were a nail. In 1981, the Soviet intelligence apparatus, the KGB and the GRU, initiated the joint massive intelligence gathering effort, codenamed Ryan, or Ryun, if you like, which I don't, and so I won't. It was created in order to give the earliest possible warning of a surprise attack by the United States and NATO. That program existed in the prior episode, and if you haven't heard that yet, episode 41, that's the background. Go back and do it, and come back here to episode 42, right after. The program began in 1981, and through 1982 it served its intended purpose. It was undoubtedly given a high priority throughout these years, and KGB double agent, Soviet traitor, NATO hero Oleg Gordievsky even later complained that the whole affair took up a disproportionate amount of time. But none of it compared to what came after the 17th of February, 1983. That's the date of a new set of urgent directives from Moscow. Gordievsky recalled that the program had, quote, acquired an especial degree of urgency and was now of particularly grave importance. The Central Command issued new instructions to organize a continual watch, to recruit new agents, and to put certain targets under constant surveillance. The KGB station chiefs around the world were instructed to focus on U.S. command and control networks. Changes in the operations of communications, staffing levels, and anything that might count as a change in the ability to prepare and launch a nuclear war. Why is it that this program of intelligence gathering, which should have given the Soviets everything they needed to know, to determine that the United States was not preparing a preemptive nuclear strike, why did it create the most dangerous near disaster of the entire Cold War, and potentially in all of human history? Why did it bring the Soviet leadership to the absolute brink of anxious overreaction? Well, back to my analogy, 
Abraham Maslow's hammer. Operation Ryan was that hammer. It was born of suspicion of U.S. intentions and existed for the sole purpose of informing the Politburo that the United States and its NATO allies were preparing the unthinkable. Military history offered precedent. Political philosophy offered motivation. And all that was left was for intelligence observation to offer proof. To the purpose-built hammer that was Operation Ryan, every action that the United States took looked like that nail. It was designed to deliver proof that a preemptive strike was coming, and it would fulfill that mission perfectly. A very dangerous state of affairs in a very dangerous time. The year was 1983, this time on the Cold War Vault. For all of the missteps, suspicions, and general tensions of 1981 and 82, they passed without much change in the status quo. In fact, even with the new, sometimes bellicose, administration of U.S. President Ronald Reagan, the Soviets stayed even-handed. Reagan's first Secretary of State, Alexander Haig, later said that he was mind-boggled with the patience of the Soviets during the first Reagan years. But 1983 arrived as a tightly wound spring. So what caused this change in the Soviet perception of the danger posed by the United States and its NATO allies? For one, they may have stayed outwardly patient with the new Reagan administration, but they were in no way blind or deaf to Reagan's actions, declarations, and antics. He had come into office as an ardent anti-communist and continued, then increased, the military buildup that had begun under the previous administration of Jimmy Carter. For the Soviets, this was an unpleasant, but also unsurprising feature of the new U.S. policy. But it was the ways that this rhetoric and military buildup took shape that would trigger Soviet anxieties. What we will call the public phase of the war scare began in March of 1983, a month after Ryan had gone into overdrive. We could even place that date at the 23rd of March, 1983. And what, you ask, happened that average Wednesday at the start of spring? The President of the United States announced a plan to create giant laser guns in space to shoot down nuclear missiles, which seemed outlandish to most, except the leadership of the Soviet Union, which took the announcement seriously and as a profound threat. The Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, and somewhat more cynically termed Star Wars by the collective media, was indeed an ambitious plan to leverage the technologically superior U.S. military-industrial complex 
to create an unprecedented anti-ballistic missile capability. And there are two ways to frame its immediate usefulness. First, a ballistic missile shield that would keep U.S. cities and military bases safe in the event of a Soviet attack. Second, and simultaneously, of course, the shield would protect U.S. ballistic missile assets as well as, or better than, it would protect the population. And so, in one largely hypothetical proposition by the U.S. President, the entire architecture of deterrence, the mutual assured destruction, the peace through mutual suicide pact that had kept the Cold War smoldering for decades, as opposed to breaking out into a full-scale conflagration, well, all of that was out the window. If the United States had a missile shield, then Soviet weapons were no longer a threat, either preemptively or retaliatorially, which is a word I made up and like it very much. The U.S. could attack, or not, without fear of the Russian response. Yuri Andropov, who had by 1983 risen to the leader of the Soviet Union, lashed out at the United States very publicly and furiously. He said that the Strategic Defense Initiative was evidence that Reagan was planning a preemptive nuclear strike. In an interview with Pravda, he said that Reagan was, quote, inventing new plans on how to unleash a nuclear war in the best way with the hope of winning it. Andropov was particularly terrified for two reasons, both admirable qualities in a leader. The first was that he understood the calculus that showed clearly the wildly destabilizing effects that such a technological achievement would have. The second was that he understood, respected, and even feared U.S. technological capabilities. Of the first, of the new space-based defense, he said it would open the floodgates of a runaway race of all types of strategic arms, both offensive and defensive. Such is the real significance, the seamy side, so to say, of Washington's defensive conception. The Soviet Union will never be caught defenseless by any threat. Engaging in this is not just irresponsible, it is insane. Washington's actions are putting the entire world in jeopardy. Andropov foresaw a new arms race on many fronts, itself intrinsically dangerous, but also the race to national bankruptcy that such a new arms race might mean. The economic situation of the Soviet Union was already showing signs of terminal weakness in the first years of the 1980s. And there was no question that the United States could out-innovate, out-produce, and eventually outspend the Soviet Union. This isn't from a post-Cold War Reaganite hagiography either. This is from Andropov himself. Andropov had a great respect for the 
technological and production capabilities of the U.S. In fact, he had an unusual fascination with all things American, and particularly in military matters. The longtime Soviet ambassador to the U.S., Anatoly Dobrynin, later recalled that it was because of Andropov's long tenure as the head of the KGB that he had such a broad grasp of Soviet foreign defense and domestic policy. A former KGB officer recalled an incident in which Andropov, while still head of the KGB, was enraged when he discovered that the Soviet engineers were incapable of producing a radio transmitter as small as one that had been taken from a CIA agent. This all paints a picture of Andropov as a leader with sufficient understanding of the technicalities of the new strategic defense initiative to be very scared indeed. And among the military leadership, such informed realism also formed the backdrop for the war scare of 1983. The first deputy defense minister and the chief of the general staff, Marshal Nikolai Ogarkov, expressed his feelings on the real meaning of Reagan's strategic defense initiative in a private conversation with journalist Leslie Gelb in 1983. Though, for certain reasons which will become clear, Gelb held back the interview until 1992, after the Soviet Union had ceased to exist. Ogarkov said, We cannot equal the quality of U.S. arms for a generation or two. Modern military power is based on technology, and technology is based on computers. In the U.S., small children play with computers. Here, we don't even have computers in every office of the defense ministry. And for reasons you know well, we cannot make computers widely available in our society. We will never be able to catch up with you in modern arms until we have an economic revolution. And the question is whether we can have an economic revolution without a political revolution. An absolutely extraordinary and prescient analysis. It's important to understand all of this to understand that to the Soviets, a major problem with Reagan's strategic defense initiative was an unbalancing of nuclear deterrence. And, something I discussed in the last episode, a shift in the correlation of forces away from the Soviet sphere and toward the United States. This is the backdrop for another move by the U.S. that would prove even more destabilizing for the balance. It would look even more suspiciously like a very slow but deliberate move toward a first strike capability, and it would bring the Soviet intelligence gathering operation into the highest possible state of alertness and anxiety. This was the planned deployment of the Pershing II medium-range ballistic missiles to Western Europe. Let's take a moment to reflect on why medium-range missiles were destabilizing and actually continue to be destabilizing. 
Medium-range ballistic missiles were, at the time, classed as having a maximum range of 3,000 kilometers, or 1,860 miles. They could have as short a maximum range as 1,000 kilometers, or 620 miles. Today, the MRBMs, the medium-range ballistic missiles, are classed as theater ballistic missiles, with ranges of less than 3,500 kilometers, or 2,200 miles. These theaters are fairly broad swaths of the planet. These ranges mean that medium-range ballistic missiles could launch from, say, the Nevada desert and hit New York City a few minutes later. They could launch from Sydney, Australia and cover the entire continent. And most importantly for our discussion, they could launch from a NATO country like West Germany and not even tax their ranges, easily hitting Moscow or anywhere in the western half of the Soviet Union. And deploying the new Pershing II MRBMs to West Germany was exactly the plan. This agitated the Soviets and destabilized the situation for a few reasons. Most apparent to everyone on the receiving end of the Pershing IIs was the fact that unlike its predecessor, the Pershing IIAs, which could only hit Warsaw Pact countries within its range of 460 miles, now the missiles could hit Moscow itself with ease. Added to that anxiety, the guidance system made the new missiles extremely accurate. With a CEP, a circular error probable of 30 meters which is pretty good after flying all the way across Europe. It could carry smaller warheads and still destroy hard targets like command and control bunkers and missile silos. Many of these targets on the western side of Russia itself were within four to six minutes flight time. Such a short time, in fact, that it's easy to imagine the scenario, the almost inevitable scenario of a Pershing II first strike that would just have been noticed as the first warheads fell on their targets, including Moscow, with the leadership still in bed. There was no more room for earlier and earlier warning systems. There was no more time to buy. Unless, of course, you could tell the future. And that is exactly what Operation Ryan was designed to do. As it became clear that the Pershing IIs were going to be deployed to Europe sometime in 1983, the Soviet intelligence apparatus began to devour every possible fragment of a clue that an attack was coming. The new intelligence alert was linked to what Oleg Gordievsky later recalled was a revision in Soviet military strategy that relied on recognizing U.S. and NATO preparations for a first strike. It was essential for ensuring the time to preempt, or at the very least, retaliate. And I say at the very least because it's not at all clear that retaliation is what the Soviet leadership had in mind. The constant refrain in the documents was that the warning must come at a very early stage, that it must come without delay. Let's do a thought experiment, shall we? Imagine that the intelligence operation produced what it had been created to produce, 
evidence that the U.S. was preparing a surprise attack against the Warsaw Pact, against Moscow itself. Would it be wise, would it be expected or even ethical to wait for the attack as final proof that the intelligence was right before launching a retaliation? If the evidence was there, the only real option would be to preempt by destroying the Pershing missile sites, at least. In fact, would the Soviets even use nuclear weapons to preempt? It wouldn't strictly be necessary, or even wise, because the Pershings were all to be located in West Germany. Easy and accessible targets for a conventional action that the Soviets had been practicing for decades. That would have put the United States in the position of using or losing the Pershings and the rest of the nuclear arsenal in West Germany. So the U.S. would need to launch. The Soviet Union could hardly allow NATO nukes to rain down on their hard targets and the capital itself. And so we circle back to preemption, this time necessarily by a sudden nuclear assault on West Germany. And this is what made the installation of those missiles in Europe so controversial and so potentially dangerous. And why, if Operation Ryan said that the attack was coming, there would hardly be the room or the time for debate. Operation Ryan wasn't designed to tell the Politburo that an attack wasn't coming to prove a negative. It was designed to tell them that it was, it was a hammer, desperately in search of a nail. But that isn't coming just yet, because 1983 had a few more disasters in store to make that preemptive attack even more likely, at least to Moscow. Because while Washington moved on and really believed that things were in a sort of status quo, the Soviet Union was at a near-permanent and permanently exhausting state of alert. And then, well, that tightly wound spring of 1983 snapped, or showed its first signs of snapping anyway. If things had truly gone nuclear in the late autumn of 1983, as we will see they might have, Historians would look back at the shootdown of Korean Airlines 007 as among the final signs that the situation had gotten entirely out of control. It was bad. Really bad. It was a disaster. Books have been written and an entire future episode might be done. But right now, let's just look at the incident in the context of 1983 and the war scare, and as the first sign that things were spiraling out of control. So what happened? Korean Airlines Flight 007 was a flight from New York to Seoul, with a refueling stop in Anchorage, Alaska. After Anchorage, the 747 began to fly toward Japan on its way to South Korea, on a route that would take it 17 and a half miles from Soviet airspace off the coast of the Kamchatka Peninsula. For reasons that will never be entirely known, 
The crew made a technical error in their management of the navigational system and began to drift off course. This took the plane over the Kamchatka Peninsula, then out to sea, and then again into Soviet airspace over Sakhalin Island. In the early morning of September 1st, 1983, 3.26 a.m. Tokyo time, a Soviet Su-15 supersonic interceptor fired on the 747. The air-to-air missile destroyed the tail, and KAL-007 crashed into the Sea of Japan, killing all 269 aboard, including many Americans and a U.S. congressman, Larry McDonald. The results were calamitous for the already tense international situation, and for the Soviet Union in particular. The U.S. intercepted Soviet communications and realized what had happened to the flight within hours. The inflammatory rhetoric from the U.S. side was matched only by the obfuscation and lies from the Soviets. Secretary of State George Shultz led the charge with a denunciation of the act as deliberate mass murder. Reagan called it an act of barbarism born of a society which wantonly disregards individual rights and the value of human life and seeks constantly to expand and dominate other nations. Within a day, both the CIA and the National Security Council had determined that the Soviets likely didn't realize that KAL-007 was a civilian airliner. But it would be a little more than four years before members of Congress were briefed on the realities of the disaster. The opportunity for a public relations coup was simply too great. The U.S. began a campaign to sway the U.N. and global public opinion toward punishing the Soviet Union through economic boycotts, lawsuits, and the denial of landing and refueling rights for the Soviet state airline, Aeroflot. But ultimately, the efforts were aimed at reframing the Korean airline shootdown not as criminal negligence or even premeditated murder, but as an example of a fundamentally evil system rotten from the roots to the shoots to the very heights of leadership in Moscow. The U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Jean Kirkpatrick, with the murderous focus of a shark smelling blood in the water, said, quote, Soviet officials regularly behave as though truth were only a function of force and will, as if truth were only what they say it is, as if violence were an instrument of first resort in foreign affairs. Whichever the case, whether the destruction of KAL Flight 007 and its passengers reflects only utter indifference to human life or whether it was designed to intimidate, we are dealing here not with pilot errors, but with decisions and priorities characteristic of a system. And the Soviets only helped in these efforts by doing what the Soviets all too frequently did, by putting into motion a policy of silence and delay and creating a counter-narrative that was actually simply counter to objective reality. Though the U.S. knew of the incident on September 1st, within hours, Moscow didn't acknowledge it until September 6th, 
But that acknowledgement didn't come with an explanation. That wasn't formulated until the 9th, when Marshal Nikolai Ogarkov gave a lengthy press conference in which he laid the blame squarely on the United States, reasoning that the plane was on an intelligence mission and that the local commander had made the right decision to shoot it down. Of course, the story of 1983 is one of perception, not reality. It's a story of the danger that came from those perceptions wherever they might have originated and however true they may have been. It is true that the press conference was simply a show, a cover-up. It is true that the pilot who fired the missiles was given specific lies to tell regarding efforts that were taken actually not taken, to identify the plane as civilian. But among the storm of lies, the Politburo itself received an entirely different version of reality. A memo, declassified in 1992, lays out the genuine belief of the leadership in Moscow. It says, We are dealing with a major dual-purpose political provocation carefully organized by the U.S. Special Services. The first purpose was to use the incursion of the intruder aircraft into Soviet airspace to create a favorable situation for the gathering of defense data on our air defense system in the Far East, involving the most diverse systems, including the Ferret satellite. Second, they envisaged if this flight were terminated by us, the U.S. would use that fact to mount a global anti-Soviet campaign to discredit the Soviet Union. So when understanding the KAL-007 shoot-down in the context of the war scare, which is the subject at hand, it's important to understand that whatever may actually have happened, the Soviets truly believed that the U.S. had mounted some kind of intelligence-gathering border transgression using a civilian airliner. This is a view that persisted for years, probably still persists in some circles. In the years immediately following the incident, the American journalist Seymour Hersh discovered the sincerity of these beliefs in research interviews. Certainly he found that Ogarkov was still towing the line. But five years after that, in the waning days of the Cold War, the Soviet Defense Minister Dmitry Yazov said to U.S. Secretary of Defense Frank Carlucci, Tell me, why did you Americans use that Korean airliner as a spy plane? Marshal Sergei Akamayev, Ogarkov's replacement, also continued to insist to American journalist Don Oberdorfer that KAL-007 was on a secret mission. Is it reasonable that the Soviet leadership actually believed what they were claiming? That's an important question to ask when looking at the war scare ramp up in late 1983. If they didn't believe it, then the shootdown served the U.S. as a propaganda victory and the Soviets would continue the war of words. But if they did believe it, then it meant that the U.S. was up to something new something even more covert and reckless in using passenger airliners to probe the frontiers in ferret missions, and might actually be 
taking intelligence gathering for a preemptive nuclear strike to new levels. So did they believe it? I think they did. Suspending what you might believe to be true, we have to see the Soviet reaction through a lens of the assumption that it actually was a U.S. calculation. Yuri Andropov hit back at the accusations, accusing the U.S. of succumbing to, quote, outrageous military psychosis, and declaring that the Reagan administration in its imperial ambitions goes so far that one begins to doubt whether Washington has any breaks at all preventing it from crossing the point at which any sober-minded person must stop. The facts on the ground certainly paint a picture of a tragic mistake rather than a nefarious act, a mass murder, as it was called. As Benjamin Fisher reminds us in his assessment for the Center for the Study of Intelligence, the situation on the Soviet Pacific frontier was not normal. It was highly strained, and those involved had been on high alert for months. In the last episode, I mentioned the U.S. Navy's role in heightening the anxiety during the war scare. Let me say something more about that. Fleet X-83 was a massive naval exercise carried out in the Pacific in the spring of 1983, between March 29th and April 17th. Three aircraft carriers, all of their groups, 23,000 crew members, and 300 aircraft. It was all conducted within flight range of the Soviet Union, and not just within range. The Soviets said at the time that during the exercise, U.S. planes had flown 20 miles into their territory and loitered for 20 minutes. I should say that the Navy never acknowledged that claim, but there is every reason to believe it's true. There was no shootdown during Fleet X-83, and heads rolled because of it. The Soviet air defenses were put on alert for the rest of the spring, summer, and probably for the rest of the year. Senior officers, who might have had more perspective during the night of the KAL-007 incident, were transferred, reprimanded, or dismissed entirely. But those who came into command at the beginning of September 1983 were either exhausted from constant heightened alert, or as another theory has it, the Fleet X overflights had angered the leadership so much that local commanders were given explicit permission to shoot down the next transgressor. Either way, it is clear that the Korean Airlines disaster began an even more intense phase of the war scare. It brought out in the U.S. rhetoric and policy everything that the Soviets had feared and seemed to confirm even their most cynical assumptions. Reagan and his administration blamed the Soviet system itself for the incident. It forced a spasm in Moscow of defensiveness and justification. This went even further when the U.S. took the international anti-Soviet public relations campaign to the United Nations. The campaign was sweeping and vast, but it also coincidentally linked the KAL-007 incident directly and explicitly 
to Reagan's own more philosophical, ethical, and deeply moral critique of the evil empire. But it was all too much to be a coincidence, and the Soviet Union saw it as an intentional move, a multinational plot against them. And finally, the U.S. administration used the incident to ask for and receive massively increased defense funding. In the Soviet view, the whole thing was a conspiracy. There was something afoot, something bigger than the appearance of its individual parts. Andropov immediately removed any doubt in Moscow about U.S. intentions. On the 29th of September, he issued a declaration on relations between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. While not as formal, though certainly as abrupt, it had the tone of an end to diplomatic relations. And what's left after that? Andropov declared, The Soviet leadership deems it necessary to inform the Soviet people, other peoples, and all who are responsible for determining the policy of states of its assessment of the course pursued in international affairs by the current U.S. administration. In brief, it is a militarist course that represents a serious threat to peace. If anyone had any illusion about the possibility of an evolution for the better in the policy of the present American administration, recent events have dispelled them completely. And that was the state of the world in the autumn of 1983. Soviet anxieties about U.S. intentions after the KAL downing became completely unhinged from the Reagan administration's actual intentions. But of course, they didn't know about that. I began this story with an analogy. Abraham Maslow's hammer. If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, the Soviets had Operation Ryan, that's true. But they also had the relentlessly aggressive and inflammatory talking points from Washington. From the beginning of the Reagan administration, yes, but to an unprecedented degree after the downing of that plane. This wasn't filtered through intelligence agents or vague interpretations of intent, it was clear, right there, for Moscow to see and hear and read. Operation Ryan was that tool that had a single purpose, and now the product of that single purpose was entirely supported by Washington's words. I should say it was Moscow's perception of Washington's words, but as I've indicated before, perception is all that really matters. A self-reinforcing system of suspicion and anxiety had been designed and deployed by the Soviet Union, and nothing coming from its global adversary contradicted its conclusions. So now, with every reason in the world to believe the United States was willing to attack, from Russian history to Ronald Reagan's rhetoric, and nothing and no one to balance the scales in favor of a more reasoned approach, only one thing was left to set off the necessary preemption that would start World War III. But surely, 
The last thing that the United States and NATO would do at the peak of such a tense time would be to conjure the Soviet nightmare to life. Surely, the last thing to do would be to go through every necessary step to launch a preemptive nuclear war, from troop movements to high-level communication spikes, in full view of the intended target. Surely, that might be a terrible idea. And yet, November came quickly. And with its now notorious military exercise that simulated an escalating conflict and the sudden release of nuclear weapons on the Soviet Union. Able Archer 83. Next time on the Cold War Vault. Thank you for listening to The Vault. Yes, I know you all want Able Archer, but history is all about context. So next time, I promise. Come join on Patreon and find all of the documents that make up the shows. Able Archer is going to be positively dense with declassified documents. Follow The Vault on Facebook at Cold War Vault, Twitter at the same, and, of course, see the show notes at coldwarvault.com. Until next time.